0: the Double Dip Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, hey, Glenn. Uh, we've got a, an international episode here today with uh, people from multiple time zones. Very excited to finally get to talk about this uh, this paper.
1: Yeah, this one has been just on the edge of wanting to discuss forever. I think we both saw the presentation at the IAI now, what, Two year and a half ago, or a year so. And a half, yeah, yeah, and we've been dying to discuss, but just waiting for the final publication. All right. So, a uh, couple things to mention
0: first. All right. Uh, big thanks to a new uh, patron from Patreon. dot com. Uh, welcome to Paris. Uh, thank you for contributing to our little podcast. The city of. I, I would. I'm going to go with no on that one, but. Um. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the entirety of the city of Paris. No, no, no. An That'd individual cool. person that may or may not live in Paris. I cannot confirm that. Uh, and then our anagram for today. I think I, I really like this one, Glenn. It might be a little more challenging than last time. Uh, right. It is Leafiest Vegan. Okay. Leafiest, L-E-A-F-I-E-S-T, and then vegan, V-E-G-A-N. So... All right, I think I got it. You think you got it already? Well, okay. Well, <laughs> I just was tickled by the the leafiest vegan as a, as a, as a term. But enough with the chit-chat for uh, this episode. It's probably going to take a lot while to talk through everything, so I think we should just jump right in. Uh, so uh, the paper that we're going to be talking about today is Testing the Accuracy and Reliability of Palmer Friction Ridge Comparisons, a Black Box Study, as published by Heidi Eldridge, Marco D'Adano, and Christophe Champot. And we have Heidi and Christoph here with us today. So Heidi, Christoph, thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank
2: you very much for having me.
1: And before we discuss the paper, and just for any listener that's interested, it is an open source paper and it will be available. We'll make links available uh, for the listener uh, when we post up the podcast. But before we get started, I just want to give a personal uh, shout out and uh, congratulations to Dr. Heidi Eldridge. (laughs) Heidi, I don't know if you know, but we we actually congratulated you in a previous episode, maybe a couple episodes back, but just wanted you to know that we are very proud of your accomplishments and congratulations on receiving your doctorate.
3: Thanks so much, Glenn. And yeah, thanks for the shout out. I, I had heard about that. Some people actually texted me and said that they heard about it on your pod. So yeah, thank you. Oh,
1: that's awesome. Well, it's a huge accomplishment, and your research was fascinating. We hope to get you back here to talk about some of that as well because, I, as you know, I was a reviewer of it, and I, I, I was fascinated and think it's really cool research that is a great contribution to the community.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much. I'd be happy to chat about it sometime.
1: Cool.
0: Well, and and I also know the you know just from from talking with you from years back that this this was not just a you know thrown together in a few months. You've been working on this for how eight, long? Eight ago? years,
3: yeah, <laughs> eight, eight years. I think I tied Glenn actually for how long it takes to do one of these monsters while working.
0: Yep, for the the palm prints. I mean, heck, the, when did the participants actually? you know, actually participate in the, the, this research here?
3: I believe it was in 2018, wasn't it, Christoph? It was a 2017 grant. So um, I believe we would have collected the data the following year at the IAI conferences is when we kicked it off and then we collected for about six months.
0: Got it, got it. Okay. That makes sense. And then even before that was, you know, creating all the samples. So yeah, definitely.
3: <laughs> yeah. There was a lot that went on behind the scenes to get all of the images ready. <laughs> that definitely took a while.
0: I think maybe the best way, to, you know, best place to start is talking about those images. You know some of the basics of you know, how you put everything together. You know what what the images were uh, in, in this paper, and then we can kind of go through then what the examiners did, what conclusions they could reach, and then start getting into the results.
3: Sure. Yeah. Do um, you want me to just go ahead and jump in?
0: Yeah, so so where where you know how did these these samples come together? Um, you know, what were you looking for when you were creating these latent palms and latent exemplars?
3: Right. Okay. So, I mean, obviously we wanted to have a large scale here. We wanted to have a lot of samples, and we wanted to have. Um, a really good range of difficulty level of different substrates, different development techniques. We wanted to make it really as representative of the breadth of casework as we could, so we ended up um, recruiting some partners from different laboratories, and we had six different laboratories partner with us, and they just went and started making ground truth samples for us. And we really didn't constrain them very much. We told them to sort of be creative, have fun with it, um, you know, use the different kinds of things that, that they encounter in casework. But you know, they could sort of even be a little silly with it if they wanted. We had somebody who, who submitted, um, marks that they had made in barbecue sauce. So they, they really took that creativity piece to heart. Um, mm-hmm. we got some submitted in blood. So somebody, you know, got really brave and stuck themselves for science. Um, and so we had a, we did have a really wide range of impressions and, uh some people just gave us lift cards uh we had pictures that were you know in C2 pictures that were of lifts we had some that were scanned and we actually received i don't even remember i, I want to say it was a couple thousand impressions and from each donor we received at least two sets of exemplars and some of them sent more so w- once we had this you know enormous batch of known ground truth uh, impressions, we had to go through and select the ones we would actually use for the study. So to do that, I went through, uh, I had this enormous spreadsheet and just went through each one. Um, and I had to first find it because they would say, you know, this is the number four finger or, or actually they wouldn't say that because this is a palm study. They, <laughs> they would say, uh, this is the thinner or this is the interdigital, uh, but they weren't necessarily a whole lot more specific than that. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. So I spent a lot of time comparing because um, I had to go and find the actual area where each one came from uh, because obviously we couldn't give some something to a participant and tell them this was a same source trial, because we knew that they, you know, I gave them the exemplar from the right palm, and this came from the right palm. Well, that's great. But what if the region of the right palm that the mark represents was not recorded in the exemplar, then that's really not a fair comparison. So we had to manually make sure that every comparison actually did have an overlapping area that contained the necessary information. So we went through and did that. And then um, as I was doing the comparisons, I was making notations on each one about, you know, in my opinion, was it easy, medium or difficult? Um, What region did it come from? How large of a region did it come from? So we had all of this uh, sort of manual metadata, if you will so that when it came time to actually build the samples for the test, we were able to draw based on those categorizations. So we, we were able to lay it out saying, okay, we want about this many that are hard about this many that are medium about this many that are, you know, expected to be no value. Um, and we uh, similarly broke them up by size and region of palm just to make sure that we had a good distribution.
1: A, a question here yeah, for you. Of course, when you're when you're talking about difficulty, mm-hmm. are you talking about your perception of the difficulty of the the latent the mark or the difficulty of the comparison or both? You know, or the, the ability to find it. The, yeah. right, the searching component.
3: Yeah, no, that's an excellent question, and it, it came out to be sort of both um, because. I was looking at the difficulty of the marks, but we got a lot of pretty good marks and we got some really bad marks as well. But we had a lot of good marks um, and we didn't want to be giving only easy comparisons. So there were a number of times where I cheated and made the comparison more difficult by choosing a degraded area of the exemplar. Gotcha. So yeah, so eventually, um, what I had rated was the pairings as being easy, medium or difficult. Again, that was by my perception, uh, which obviously not everyone would agree with my perception. I did that so that we would just have sort of a benchmark expectation so that we could distribute them fairly evenly. And another thing that I did try to consciously do was to have a set of them in there that in my opinion, uh, I would expect the response to be inconclusive. That's not to say that there aren't people who would identify it, um, but but I was trying to really push the envelope on some of them to try to force some inconclusives.
1: Sure. No, that makes complete sense. So if I can just add,
2: um, for us from the outset, it was absolutely paramount that we could not dispute the grand truth. And um, for those of you who have done this, it's quite difficult to do. It's quite difficult to organize a lab in order to produce marks whose sources can be testified to as being witnessed. So that was a a, a quite fun part of setting this up, is to to give proper instructions so that we can at least consider that the palm that was designated was the right one. And then we wanted to have cases where the act of manipulating an object, of leaving a mark on a surface, was natural. And leaving marks from the palm is often associated with uh, certain movement and activities and waiting stuff and having uh, the object grasp with the whole hand. Hence, that's where we ask people to be creative in a sense that we didn't want it to have pristine palmed marks produced by just putting a, a flat hand on a flat surface. But we wanted to have a range of surfaces that will mimic the complexity of casework. So that's where uh, we started to lift bottles, which were actually filled with liquid. We started to lift boxes to uh, use your hands to to lift a a window uh, and so on, which will leave specific marks with quite at times a lot of distortion. And that made the collection uh, of these marks much more relevant and as close to Clay's work as, as we could do.
3: It ended up with some really oddly shaped marks too, which turned out to be important because uh, we had some results where we found erroneous exclusions that were based upon people's interpretation of the shape of the mark, that they expected it to be from a particular part of the palm and it wasn't. And it was because of the way the items were handled.
1: Mm, interesting. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right, so you've you've you collected hundreds and hundreds of of latent prints and known prints and categorized them to get like a you know good sample uh, distribution of different types of comparisons altogether.
1: Right. And from that data set, if I can just interject here, I believe that the total ended up being 526 pairs of palms that were set up. And of that, and this is important for the calculations later, of the 526 pairs that were going to be presented to participants, 400 were from the same source and 126 were from different sources, which basically is a three to one ratio, three to one same source to different source, which that will become a little more relevant when we get the error rate calculation. So, why don't we discuss a little bit about now the participants and what software they used, how they interfaced with the study, how you um, recruited them and and got them to participate.
3: We recruited people sort of over the long term through a bunch of different ways. Um, We did a lot of it through email lists. We did a lot of it through um, advertising at conferences, and we had a little note that we published in the ID News to tell people about it. Um, We asked all of our colleagues to share through word of mouth, and we had a really good response. We had more than 300 people who enrolled in the study, there seemed to be a lot of interest and a lot of enthusiasm. And then, um, you know, people get really busy with their day jobs. So they're not always able to do the full time commitment as they had hoped. So we didn't end up with as many people completing the study as enrolled. But we certainly did have a lot of interest. um, And we did manage to collect a lot of data points from the people who were able to, you know, go through the whole study. Um, and even people who didn't go through the whole study, people who went through part of the study, we still used their data as well. Um, any trial that was complete we used, regardless of whether the person was able to complete all of the trials. And we did ask each person to complete 75. Trials, which is a pretty heavy lift. Palm comparisons are not easy. Some of these were designed to be specifically not easy, so it was a, a pretty significant time commitment there.
1: Yeah, I, I saw that there were 133 people out of the 328 that initially said yeah, we'll participate. So about a third of the people committed to all 75. That's actually pretty impressive. Like you said, that's that's a lot of work. It
3: was, and you know, we were in communication with people throughout. You know, we we preserve their anonymity, so we they. had an anonymous username, I had a liaison who was screening all their emails and sending them to me de-identified. But I had a lot of emails from participants who were saying like, you know, I really want to do this, but I've been sick or I had a family member who had a problem or, you know, or we had a whole bunch of homicides in our lab that I had to deal with. Like, you know, real life happens and People were so lovely and you know willing to be involved and asking for extensions and you know sort of giving me their life story of why they were busy and um, <laughs> I I really appreciate that everyone took the effort to do as much as they were able to do.
1: Yeah, that's great.
0: Yeah, can confirm about the time commitment. I was so I was one of the the participants uh, uh, in the paper and and yeah, I was just trying to you know just a of trying to set aside some time every day to to go through it and then going back to regular casework where I could look at fingers occasionally was almost a relief. It's a break. Because yeah, you just, you know, usually in normal casework, you don't just only do palms. It was such a, a strange mindset to get into where everything was appalled. were were there any any interesting information in who participated? You know, anything unexpected or different from the previous like FBI noblest black box paper?
3: Yeah, I mean, we we did have some different demographic trends than they had. I know we had more international participants than they did, and I think we had more ret- retirees than they did.
1: And the certification rate was forty four percent. Uh, in this study, where in you know the f b i black box one's difficult because f b i participants would have said they were certified but not necessarily certified through i a i so I think they were around an eighty mm-hmm. percent certification rate, but you know that's that 's hard to interpret uh, and you also have most of your participants were from accredited agencies too
3: right.
0: So that, so that was probably another big difference is just the number of FBI examiners or the percentage of participants that were from the FBI was pretty high in black box, but
2: uh, presumably much lower for this one.
3: I mean, we, we don't know what agencies people came from, but presumably it would have been lower. Yeah,
2: we don't know whose agencies the participants are coming from. Uh, we we collected some information about their agencies, for example, whether it was an accredited lab or not but you cannot really trace back to whose agency the person is affiliated to. Sure.
3: I think you guys were asking about um, the interface that participants used. And I was thinking yes. maybe Christoph might want to address that since they did a lot of the customization over at UNL there.
2: Yes, the interface is uh, that we have used is is something that we have used in numerous studies, uh, including Glenn's PhD, uh, to start with. Uh, and it is the interface that we call Pianos. And Pianos has been designed with a sort of versatility to allow such studies. So Pianos is an open source um, software which uh, allows to carry on comparison, distinguishing analysis from comparison and doing documentation of, of these observations. Now, for that study... Uh, we didn't ask people to document uh, their comparison. They could, if they wished to, they could use the tools to do the documentation, but they were not compelled to do the documentation. But they were compelled, of course, to provide their end conclusion. So that's why it is called a black box study and not a white box study. So we were more interested in the outcome more than the process whereby they reach the outcome. The interface... Is has been redesigned to some degree to be to allow the palm study. When I say redesign, is because of the number of users and the number of cases per users. Uh, we had to set up accounts and distribution of cases a bit differently than uh, what we have done when what you do when you use pianos for for other casework. Uh, But essentially, the platform was exactly the same as far as the tools available to the users.
3: And one thing that we did add to this version of pianos that was a lot of fun for us, probably not so fun for the participants, uh, but we put in the ability to rotate the unknown image, the unknown impression, which means that we had the freedom to present unknown marks not necessarily in the correct orientation. So that did add a layer of difficulty because the participants did not know whether or not the impression was correctly oriented and they they may have had to rotate it to um, sort of succeed in their comparison.
0: And that's a significant change from the noblest black box paper where everything was presented, you know, both both images were presented upright.
3: Correct. And it's one of the reasons that our expectation was that our erroneous exclusion rate would be much higher than theirs was because of that additional difficulty.
0: It combined with all of the uncertainty of, of the bigger area to compare against in a palm and uh, you know, just all the other difficulties you know yes. that examiners talk about uh, that they encounter when comparing palms.
3: Exactly. And the fact that they just don't do it as often. So presumably, they're not as practiced at it.
0: Sure. So then what was, what were the, um, the, the, the steps that the examiner went through and the conclusions that they could reach at each of those steps?
3: Right. So we tried to mirror the structure of the FBI Noblest study as closely as we could. Uh, and we discussed in the article numerous reasons why the, the results of the two studies should not be directly compared. But we wanted to be as close to being able to compare them as we could so that we could say sort of in general our our examiners as good at comparing palms as they are at comparing fingers. So we tried to mimic their design quite closely um, as far as the user experience. So they started off with um, the list of trials. And after selecting a trial, they would be presented with the mark alone to do their analysis. At the end of the analysis, they would have to commit to uh, an analysis decision of either no value, value for exclusion only, or value for ID. If they chose no value, that trial is done and they're free to choose another one. But if they chose either of the value for ID or value for exclusion only, then they would proceed to a comparison. And in the comparison phase, they might be presented with the same source pair or a different source pair. Um, Again, we had the ground truth on all of those. Um, They would do the comparison. As Christoph mentioned, they were free to annotate if they wanted to, but they were not required to. Um, There was also a free text box, so they were free to make commentary in that box if they wanted to, but again, they were not required to. And at the end of their comparison, they were forced to make a decision, and the decision options they had were exclusion, inconclusive, and identification. If they chose inconclusive or exclusion, they then had to give a reason. And the reasons were on a drop-down list, and they were the exact same reasons that were on the drop-down list in the FBI noblest study. We just took them directly out of that paper. Um, And if they chose identification, then they did not have to do any additional justification. Uh, And then after that, no matter what their conclusion was, they went on to a question about their perceived difficulty of the comparison. And again, the options for that perceived difficulty scale were taken directly from the FBI noblest paper. Uh, And then once they had answered that question, they were finished with that trial. Then they had 74 more to do.
2: (laughs) Yes. Uh, And the the reason, one of the reasons to be close to the FBI study design is that it's Im- for us it 's important that you don 't detract people from their normal habit of fusing the or, or conducting and being involved in these studies and if you if you completely change the design of your study compared to previous studies probably made on the sev- very similar if not the same similar same population, then you you run the risk of having results which are due to the to the strange interface, the change the choice of words of concepts which are not familiar people are not familiarized with, so we decided to stick with the, the sort of ground basis that the FBI nobly study laid, uh, and and keep. With that concept all through the, our study, uh, totally makes
0: sense of having that it, it, to be as comparable as possible.
2: Uh, the reason is not to be comparable in terms of comparing numbers. Comparable comparabilities is in terms in, in terms of the user experience. It's important that you don't retract people from the user experience, either from casework or what we have done in similar studies. That was our vision on this
0: that clarification makes sense so separate from keeping that consistent for you know to meet the examiner's expectations you know, one of the things that you kind of jumps out from the the suitability information here is just you know the relatively low use of the value for exclusion only and i just wonder you know, is this a do you think because uh, very few latent prints fit into this category because examiners just aren't used to using it in different labs you know,
2: yes i think I think it is it is due to the fact that um if we if we follow the the, the past sweep fast documents between this approach one and approach two, I think a lot of laboratories are are using approach one where only value for ident and and no value are used, and value for exclusion only is not used by a lot of laboratories. But in addition, my view, and maybe I'm not sure we have the data to support that claim, but, but it will be nice to discuss it together. Palm, as it was mentioned by Heidi, is not what people do on a daily basis. So, uh, almost as a as a safe position, people tend to think in terms of value for ident versus no value, and and don't really practice the value for exclusion only. Even less with palm than we may use to, to to practice it for for fingers, uh, tips. So I think the one of the reason is that you know, a palm comparison is not the the daily endeavor of all examiners to the same quantity and. Uh, compared to fingers, and we might have an effect there that people fall back to only two categories out of analysis.
1: Yeah, it, it's quite possible that, given first of all that with with palm prints, you are generally dealing with more surface area, so people may not, or people may need to recalibrate what they think about value for exclusion only when it comes to palm prints. So there might be that distinction between using it normally for fingers versus a palm that has so much more surface area and typically more characteristics increases that 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 might actually contribute to that as well
0: now we, we talked about what the uh, comparison samples that we were working with the what the examiners were doing the conclusion that they were uh, reached so at a high level what were the results from both the uh, analysis side of things suitability and the comparison the you know id exclusion and conclusive
3: results uh, essentially in analysis what we saw which i think is no surprise to anybody is examiners are variable. Uh we saw a lot <laughs> of variability in those analysis decisions. Interestingly there there was never consensus on that value for exclusion only vote. So because analysis is essentially a subjective determination, there's no such thing as ground truth for analysis. We can't objectively say if a person was right or wrong in their analysis decision. Um, So, we chose to use the majority vote to establish basically the expectation for each mark. Um, And we presented the results that way as a a majority vote expectation. Um, So, we never had value for exclusion only as the majority vote for any mark. Um, We did, of course, have a lot where the majority vote was either no value or value for identification. Um, And we did see quite a lot of variability between uh, responses that we got from different examiners. We presented the data in our paper. uh, We presented a sort of confusion matrix of of agreement and disagreement. Again, we couldn't call them errors, because there's no ground truth. But we had a, a variable that we included that we called, it's ERD, examiner response disagreement, and MRD, which is majority response disagreement. So we looked at how often the response that was given by an individual examiner was not the one the majority said, and the, how often the response that was given by the majority was not agreed with by individual examiners. and those numbers were pretty high. Uh, for example, under uh, value for identification, over 25% of the time, if an individual examiner said value for identification, the majority disagreed. So really, the take home message from that section is just examiners are very variable in their suitability decisions, which is like, you know, in other news, water is wet. But at the same time, <laughs> it's, it's kind of an important point to make because it's not a trivial decision. Whether somebody concludes that something is a value for comparison or not, you know, impacts what's going to happen with that case. If one person says it's a value for ID and another person says it's not, well, the person who said it is is going to compare it, and the person who said it's not is not. And if that is an important Mark that is very probative in the case, it could really change the course of the outcome of the case, just the luck of the draw of who who took that case and whether they felt it should be compared or not. So this variability, I think is kind of an important point,
1: just alone on on those data, and would you recommend that? especially in cases where examiners determine no value, that those cases be reviewed by another analyst? Basically, that should be part of a verification process?
3: I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I know it's extra work and extra time, and, and you have to do your cost-benefit analysis of how many cases are you willing to let slip through the cracks, as it were. But um, if you wanted to make sure that you got everything looked at that should be looked at, that's how you would need to do it. You'd need to have those analysis decisions reviewed.
1: Yeah, it seems, just based on the data, it seems a risk in some cases not to have those reviewed by other examiners. Exactly.
0: Yeah, everyone's going to miss one at some point in time, whether it's misinterpretation because uh, you just didn't see, you didn't look closely enough to really see all the minutia that are there, or just plain old missing it. You know, a couple cards are stuck together, or you, you just didn't see one that was kind of faint in the background. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's that's a key part is someone else looking at the uncompared ridge detail to see if there's anything there that
1: should have been. So from the perspective of the statistics, which is where I think most examiners are either going to have to at some point learn the numbers or be aware of these numbers, because as I'm sure we'll talk about towards the end of this interview, you know, the, the value of this paper and how it might be used in court or to support the The overall reliability of not only friction ridge examinations, but palm print examinations. Christoph, can you speak a little bit to the overview of the statistics, the numbers, and what are some
2: of the take-home points from the data? There is two ways we looked at the data. One is to consider or to check the reported answer by individual against the grand truth, because we knew the grand truth. So we did here... A typical false positive and false negative rate calculation. So, the number of times we had for a false positive an erroneous identification when in fact we knew that this mark was not coming from that print. And we looked at the number of cases for the false negative where examiners did an erroneous exclusion when the case provided was from common source print and marks and the decision was an exclusion. These two rates are, respectively, about 1%. It's a little bit lower, it's 0.7% for for the false identification. And it's about 10% for an exact number, 9.5% for the false negative rate. These are typical trends that we have observed in all of these studies, that the false positive rate is lower than the false negative so, in terms of priority, we may have to look more at false negatives than we do at false positive as a starting commentary. But if you look at the, the numbers, that does not really tell you a lot when I'm telling you 1% false positive. It's interesting to know that we are talking here among 1,700 comparison at 12 wrong identification. And I think it's one looking at things in terms of percentages make you forget that there is an actual actual count behind these numbers. So I think the count is more important than the ratio. Uh, certainly, when it comes to realize what twelve wrong identification means. So uh, we had twelve wrong identification, and for the false negative, for about five thousand eight hundred we have 550, and, and I'm rounding the numbers, uh, false exclusions. So there is a large difference between the two. So that is probably the way people would, look, would like to look at these numbers first. Now, there is an important aspect that we have dealt with in the paper, is that the inconclusive decisions that were taken by examiners were not counting in these rates, so we just count the identification and exclusion conclusion over uh, over the grand truth, but the inconclusives are not distributed or not used in this computation. In the paper, you will find that we you will see that we have done uh, some computation to allow comparisons with previous studies where the inconclusives were taken into account.
1: I've got the data in front of me, so I'll just let me just throw them out real fast that. When there was when you took the inconclusives out and gave the false positive error rate, it was approximately zero point seven. If you put the inconclusives back, it's 0.5. So we're not talking about a huge difference here, I mean, to be fair, but you're, I mean, because obviously it's going to affect the totals, but 0.7 compared to 0.5. And when it comes to the false negatives, you said it's around 10%, uh, yeah, 9.5 versus 8% if you put the inconclusives back. yes. So, I mean, it doesn't really – uh, drastically change these numbers, but that's why there is, a, like you said, a difference in the calculation. I think in the grand scheme of things,
2: it does not make any difference.
0: Yeah. And one other note there, when the inconclusives were taken out, the VEO, the value for exclusion only decisions were also put back in.
1: They were left yes. in, yes. Yes. So yeah.
0: there's, there were, with these two different numbers, there's two things changed uh, between these two sets.
3: Right, and they're opposite. One One's in and the other's out in each case. <laughs>
2: Yeah, the, right. the reason was to maintain some sort of comparability with the FBI Nobly study. That's the only reason why we we have um, done the computation uh, with that second scenario. That being said, we believe that the being conclusive should not be brought in uh, because it does not make any sense. Well, <laughs> okay, here we go. Now, now, now you just that threw down the, the here. <laughs> uh, Just... The well, b- before we debate that, the second perspective that you can look at these results is to look at the comparison outcome against the majority vote outcome, Right. and that's where the inconclusives comes in. Now, when you do that exercise and you look at the false positive rate, you mm-hmm. will have a different number because the cases where you have made a wrong identification will be counted when the majority voted for exclusion and also it will be counted when the majority voted for an inconclusive. And that is something that examiners have to keep in mind. In that, in, that, in, in the computation of the error rates, when you consider all the majority outputs Exclusion, identification and inconclusive against their decisions, their individual decisions. Decision of identification when the majority decided an inconclusive, the grand truth conclusion will be considered hence as being an inconclusive. So you change drastically the error rate. In that case, you, you have, you have an error rate which is, high, which is different when you consider this three by three matrix, as opposed to a two by two matrix.
1: Yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll take both of these separately because this is one of the first papers that I think very uh, uniquely shows this perspective about ground truth versus consensus, and and I think that's what makes it such a novel perspective. So we'll definitely want to unpack that. Let's let's go back to just the the data themselves. And, and, and even though, you, like you said, we don't want to compare them too much apples to apples to the FBI black box finger study, but it's still helpful to, to consider that in light of that. Can we take a look at uh, the palm data uh, error rates rank up against the, the, the black box
2: finger study? Yes, but I mean, Glenn, it, it shows the same trends. When I say yes. trends, it means re- relatively low error rates. A bit higher for Palm if you look at the numbers themselves. We are talking about seven percent, roughly seven point five. A little bit higher compared to the black box study in terms of false positive, and if I remember well, roughly the same number for the before the, the false exclusion. Now, right. why I'm I, I'm reluctant to engage into a comparison is because it's like comparing apple to oranges. Palm are not fingers. <laughs> so and and the populations, uh there is no guarantee whatsoever that we have the same type of populations which which took the study. So apart from looking at very broad ranges uh, or trends in these data which mimic roughly Parliament, parliament fingers are not very far, I don't see I think it's dangerous to try to compare to the decimal error rates between the two. No, I I would agree that the
1: the trends are helpful. Here is why I bring this up, because before these data existed, this is where I'm calling out examiners a little bit, and Christoph, you know this is happening. When examiners are put on the spot on the stand and asked for their palm print data before this study, they basically said, well, we don't need separate palm print data. I mean, I'm a fingerprint examiner. That means I look at all friction ridge skin, and it doesn't really matter whether it's palm or finger. It's going to be the same. So, I mean, these data show that the trends are the same, but as you just kind of pointed out, fingers and palms are not the same. And the specificity of the characteristics, the difficulty, uh, the, the knowledge base, they are different, although examiners are often equating these two things together currently on the stand.
3: That, that's how we got the funding, Glenn. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. the exact point we made is, you know, people are claiming these are the same and maybe they are, but no one's actually looked to find out.
1: Yeah. I, I know a defense attorney by the name of Brendan Max. We've had him on before. Maybe you guys know Brendan. And he and I were doing a, a presentation for lawyers. And I, uh, you know, I was sort of saying, you know, I think the Daubert challenges when it comes to fingerprints are really dead because there's just so much data that are available. And, you know, we've done our homework since the NAS report. And he, he checked me a little bit. and He was like, well, yeah, for fingers. But what about palms? And what about those toe prints you guys are testifying to? Do you have your toe print study? Do you have statistics on how rare the characteristics are in the toe? And I went, oh yeah, good point. Uh, maybe maybe those maybe those areas are a little ripe for for challenge.
3: Yeah. So we are definitely trying to to close a gap there for what it's worth. Again, it's it's not an apples to apples comparison, but at least now we have some data that we can sort of chunk into the palms bin.
2: Yeah, it it gives a baseline for the the, the state of affair uh, it, it gives like a like a, a photography of a group but that has to be taken as a as a still photography it does not tell the whole story i think if if we really want to compare palm with fingers and and, and understand the differences there is no other way than to do to do fundamental research about minutia distribution and how it behave on palm, how it compare to fingers, and to do actual measurement uh, through measure, me- measuring palms, respectively fingers or toes or uh, phalanges. Uh, that would be much more efficient to realize the differences that exist between these um, section of, of friction ridge patterns uh, than testing. Experts like monkeys using black box studies. I think they, there is, a, there is, a, there is a. I don't, I don't think we will go very, very far and very long by considering examiners as as monkeys who do tests and we just check whether they got the right answer or not because they don't go, they don't get the right answer every time, and these error rates are substantial. Um, so, substantial in a sense that if you put them in relationship to the number of comparison that are done on a yearly basis, I think no one will suggest that there is as many wrong association proposed worldwide in this area. So there is a limit in what you can do by testing experts and Potentially, if we really want to see the difference between palm and fingers, we should go at a different route. Yeah, okay. So one way to avoid the, uh, which we'll get into here in a minute, but one way to
0: avoid the, the debate over inconclusives is to look at the, the positive and negative predictive values. So including all of the value for exclusion only uh, numbers, the positive predictive value was 99.8, negative uh, 76 and then uh, just looking at the value for id comparisons the numbers were uh, positive predictive value 99.8 still 82.7% for the negative predictive value right so you know, overall you're know, looking back at at the fbi i think the trend is basically the same it's very comparable uh, and and slightly worse for 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 really both you know at first you're looking at that you know the at first glance you know one of the things that jumped out at me just initially was the negative predictive value all the way down at seventy six percent? I think with at Black Box it was you know up at eighty six. Or if you want to compare just the VID numbers, then it would be um, eighty nine from for for FBI's Black Box,
1: and then eighty. 80- three for for this one. Just so listeners understand what we're talking about here, when we're talking about positive predictive value, negative predictive value, there's a false discovery rate to this. So another way of looking at these data, another way of saying what you just said, Eric, is that when an examiner in this study said it was an exclusion, when they committed to the exclusion decision, they were wrong 24% of the time as opposed to the black box study where they were wrong 14% of the time. So that's a pretty big jump when it comes to, I have compared the palm print. I've said, I'm going to exclude it. And now you're wrong one in four, one four times. times. That's that's, that actually is for me, like the most astounding takeaway from this study one in four times being wrong about a palm print exclusion.
0: Well, so a couple things on that. And, and the first is, the reason I'm saying um, comparing the 24 and 14 is because those are the comparable numbers between the two, or yeah. you have to switch over to, so the first off is the, the prevalence of mated um, samples in this study uh, is a little higher than in the FBI black box one.
3: It's um, close, but it's, it's, it's off close. by a little
0: bit, yeah. But, yeah, and that's going, to, uh, that's going to have the effect of raising up these uh, predictive value numbers. Or raising up the negative predictive value number.
3: I think they did a 70-30 split, didn't they? And ours was 75-25.
1: They did 60-40. You're not, not crazy far apart, but that's going to have an effect. You have more opportunities to make a false negative.
0: Right. Uh, but then the rest of it was is probably what we've kind of already explained. Just the difficulty of, of, of excluding palms when you've just got so much to look through. and uh, And then also adding in the uncertainty about the orientation. Mm-hmm. You know, so combining all three of these things together, I think, adds up and it, make the, it just makes the numbers make sense.
2: But Eric, there is another thing that I think we have to account for is that, and, and we noticed that in, in numerous studies, the concept of exclusion, what is an exclusion, is not very clear in a lot of examiners' mind. Yes. So a lot of examiners tend to take exclusion as meaning inconclusive from time to time uh, and i think there is there is really a need to clarify what is an exclusion because that it seems obvious to us that when you take the option of exclusion you mean i have excluded that mark from being having the same source as the print it is not what i have observed in these studies when you investigate the narrative for example and we have done that with Glenn in in a, in a previous study as well. And we were astonished to see how poorly understood the concept of exclusion is. And there is a re- there is a reason for this: is pe- people are accounted or taken ac- accounted for identification decisions, but there is less uh, of that for exclusion decisions. So I think there is a tradition of being of of using exclusion in a very lighter way than uh, the term identification is used.
0: Uh, heck, examiners work in identification units, you know, not, not exclusion units. Uh, <laughs> the, the focus is on identification throughout the entirety of training and, and then in, in work as well.
1: Yeah, and, and to put a finer point on that, Christoph, like you were alluding to, what we've observed over the years is that often exclusion in the mind of examiners, unless they have very specific exclusion training like the kind that Eric has done over the years, is that if they search something and don't find correspondence, they don't find it, well, then that's an exclusion. And that's what we're you are definitively saying that should not be the definition of exclusion. Just you didn't find something, but you need to be able to effectively prove with your criteria and a clear definition
2: of exclusion, you need to be able to meet those criteria. And that, that's for me what's like the most important take on message from the study, <laughs> much more than whether it's eighty percent, seventy percent, or fifty percent, is that yeah. there is a clear lack of definition of the criteria which are sufficient for an exclusion.
0: Well and you know before the the FBI black box paper there really was no you know formalized training on exclusion and now you know I, I've taught a class for years now Glenn's taught uh, on the topic as well. However, you know thinking back into the classes I've taught for the past I don't know 5 or 6 years I never really put any palm examples in those it was just with the, the limitations of working on the papers that we were working on it was all focused on fingers still uh glenn I'm, I'm curious for the palm training class that you've done over the years were there any many
1: palm samples for user for examiners to play with in the searching exercises i have a complete packet of palms okay. so in the Comparison exercises. I made sure to include yes a number of poems, but they're not the one to one exclusion decision cases. Uh, but completely agree that there's
0: that this is a need in the field to define exclusion and to have it mean more than I looked and didn't find it. That it is.
3: It should be an affirmative statement, not a default. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, great. A great way of saying that. All right. So, Heidi, we talked a little bit about this off air and that one of the things that you had said that you wish you had done was capture whether or not uh, there were anchor points or not uh, that the examiner was using in the process and uh th- it's in the paper a little bit but you got to dig for it and you got to parse it together can you talk a little bit about that and let's look at the let's look at the error rate when the anchor point was present versus the error rate when the anchor point was not present
3: sure yeah so this was one of those things that sort of you know hindsight is 2020 20. it didn't necessarily occur to us up front that this was going to be important information but once we saw all of the erroneous exclusions coming in, I started getting curious, you know, about what was causing them. <laughs> and of course I shouldn't be curious because it's a black box study and it's a white box question. Um, but I, I just wanted to know why are people making all of these erroneous exclusions, especially when I looked at some of the pairs and some of them I was like, wow, that looks pretty easy, but people are missing it. Or, you know, or that one looks hard, but people are getting it. Um, and so I just started thinking about these policies that we know some of the laboratories have, and I, I know Eric's is one of them, that sort of specify criteria for reaching an exclusion. And one of those criteria being that you have to have some sort of reasonable anchor so that you know where you are. So that again, like we were just discussing, you're not just saying I didn't find It, but you're saying, I know that I was looking in the right place and I didn't find it, which is a much stronger statement. And so I just went back through again, we didn't capture information from the participants about whether they saw an anchor of any kind, but I just went back through manually through all of our images that were in same source trials. And I sort of took a tally of which ones I could find an anchor in. And, and I defined for myself what I considered an anchor. We put that in the paper. Uh, we said we would, we would count an anchor as a core, a delta, a primary crease large enough to tell which one it is, a thumb bracelet, a recurve or a vestige. And so I just, you know, basically something that is a landmark that tells you where you're living. And so I went through and and sort of put a tick in the box if I could see one of those things and not if I didn't. And then uh, once I had identified the marks that had these anchors versus the marks that did not have these anchors, um, just went through and did a count of how many erroneous exclusions fell on each one so that that's where the, and this this all was summarized into one small paragraph in the paper as as glenn mentioned so you have to kind of dig for it um but it did turn out that we had 356 of our erroneous exclusions and recall that there were 552 of them total so 356 of them occurred Uh, In cases where there was not a reliable anchor present, Uh, the other ones obviously occurred when there was a reliable anchor present. So from that, we could make some conclusions about um, how helpful it would be to have policies similar to the one that that Eric uses or used.
1: The way that breaks down, Heidi, is 64 percent of the erroneous exclusions did not have an anchor point and 36 of the erroneous exclusions did have an anchor point based on your assessment. Mm -hmm. So effectively, twice as likely. And and if you run the the false negative discovery rates, you'll find it's 17% when there was no anchor, Present and 9% when there was. So I, I think what I really take a home from that, and I was a late comer to the game of you must have an anchor point to exclude because I don't like the must in there because I've seen <laughs> examples of hypotheners that have, you know, 50, 60, 70 minutiae, mm-hmm. but no anchor point per se. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the idea that one can't exclude on that sort of impression. But I think the fair, safe statement is if you make an exclusion without an anchor point, you are much more likely to make an erroneous exclusion. The risk of error is higher without an anchor point. It won't go to zero if you you know, have an anchor point policy, but it's certainly a much higher risk without the anchor point. Fair?
3: I think so. Yeah, you you can drastically reduce your risk of erroneous exclusions with such a policy, I think is a fair statement.
1: Yeah, I I like that. I like like that summary. And that, I guess, resonates with me that fits and leaves open the door that one could – Exclude without an anchor point, but understanding that there's a higher risk of it, and maybe that is a good case where you make sure you've got a verifier, a blind verifier, or some sort of enhanced verification procedure. Well, heck, Glenn, if 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 all it takes to get you on
0: board the train is to to you know allow exclusions for high quality hypotheners, well, we'll, we'll throw those in too. Okay. Uh, and the data. It
1: took the data right. for the convention. <laughs> and the data.
0: Okay.
3: Now I'm I'm gonna help, go ahead and take credit for this one. Kristoff and I changed his mind.
1: <laughs> you did. Actually, this was the tipping point for me. This study was definitely the tipping point. Well <laughs> then,
0: then then I'll be the I'll be the behind the scenes person that laid the groundwork uh for, <laughs> for no, you did. the tipping no, you point did. to occur.
1: Well, if if we could, can we jump to one of the I, I think is going to be a more controversial read on the paper, of course, is this consensus approach and Christoph highlighted the idea earlier, which is is going to be a novel idea to examiners that. And and Eric and I have joked about this many times on air, uh, because Eric and I have looked at each other's comparison work before, and and I've teased Eric over the years. Uh, he has this eagle eye where he goes into areas that no other sane examiners would go into. Oh, he's that and make guy. An identif- <laughs> he is that guy, and I guarantee if he was in your study, he's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he he will make identifications or or at least see features that a, the average examiner doesn't. And so I, I suspect I'm speaking for Eric here that when he's told now that the majority said inconclusive on this and you said ID, that's a false positive with respect to the majority. That's got to be a – that's probably not something you want to hear, Eric. Let's let's dive into that a little bit.
2: Yes. Well, Glenn, I think we need to be careful with the terms. It's the, the false positive positives that we have obtained is only when you compare the results against grand truth. All the other ones are discrepancies in opinions. Now, the the question you ask is, shall I believe Eric with his eagle eye when he's adamant about an identification, when the rest of the world, by majority, is saying, no way, you cannot only, you can only say inconclusive. And I, I, it's, it's just a, a question of defining who we're going to believe. So the option that we have suggested is that the majority will win because there is no, there is no grand, tr- apart from the grand truth we know that there is no agreed decision that should be taken in any of these cases. The only way to define the agreed decision is to go back to some sort of a vote. So we took the option to take the majority vote as being the declared expected answer. It's like in the proficiency testing, you cannot use the grand truth as being what the answer that should be given by examiner. So what you do normally, you set up a panel to see what would be the agreed answer among that panel that will be declared to be the expected outcome. That's exactly the same thing here. So we have decided to use a majority vote to decide what would be the expected answer. If you adopt that policy, yes, Eric is wrong when he's well alone. <laughs> to be it's, fair, it, only, ha- it, it only happened twice from the samples that I, that I compared <laughs> in this study. He's claiming an ident when... The majority of the examiners said, you need to be more careful with this comparison. And I can understand why the eagle eye that Eric is, is a bit shocked by this, unless we can suggest a way to redefine what would be the expected conclusion. And on what basis we decide that in a different way, then we can recompute things and maybe Eric will be right. But as, as, as soon as you accept that the majority will rule the expected decisions, then in then there is uh, Eric will be wrong in that case, even though, and that's the troubling element, even though that is right when it comes to the grand truth. So, It's all these cases, and Glenn, you lived them as much as I did, where you have an examiner who is pushing the envelope and he may well be right. There is not the basis for it, and he will be the only one in the lab who is doing this. And I'm not sure it is good practice to consider that Eagle Eye is always right.
0: Well, then there's the reverse of that, too, where the Eagle Eye might be pushing for ID, the majority says exclusion, but the majority is wrong. You guys go into detail about that as well.
3: We we do, and and we also go um a little bit into the third case that could occur, which is that the majority is now saying ID, and you have a few people who are saying inconclusive and so it's it's the other end of the spectrum for sensitivity right. where the the majority say yeah there's enough here and you've got a few guys who are just a little risk averse who are saying you know I just don't want to call it so is that person wrong should we be forcing that person to make an ID they're not comfortable with you know hey buddy everybody else will make it why won't you so it's it's um, challenging on both ends of the spectrum i think when you're when you're the outlier
0: yes and and I think you know really challenging here in a black box study where which it' only kind of can go so far into mimicking casework right where when there is no conflict resolution procedure right, right. everyone's just doing their own thing in separate bins and and I think you, you know you mentioned this again in the paper you know, usually in a laboratory there's different situations here you might disagree because you each saw the same things and then just have a a different threshold. Yes. Right, which is kind of the situation that we're talking about with an you know, eagle eye versus, uh, you know, other people. <laughs> Regular people. Normal <laughs> uh-huh. eye. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the other situation is, you know, Someone who just saw it and didn't see it, right? Mm -hmm. Who just never thought to look at the left hand. Right. And as soon as you even, you don't have to like point it out or have, or share someone else's uh, markup, right? Where there might be an introduction of bias there, but just even just say, look at the left hand or,
3: or even just look again.
0: Or just look again or, uh, you know, no, no, turn the the latent 90 degrees. Well, then there it is.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'll go ahead and share. I've had erroneous exclusions in casework, and there's one that I vividly remember that my verifier brought to me, I don't know, a week or two later and said, you missed one. And I took it from her and I looked at it for about a second and a half and said, yep, I sure did. And I have no idea how I missed it. It was plain as the nose on my face. And I just didn't see it the first time.
0: I've made that same error and just and you know looked at it. and was like, well, there it is.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> there's
2: the delta, and there's all the minutia that match up. What did I? What, yeah. what was I missing? Yeah. So, if I may add one one thing that we take home from these studies, by the transparency the numbers gives in terms of risks, it is a plea for thinking about quality control measures. And adapting these measures to the case, as, as we said before, you have an exclusion with anchor points. You have less risk for an error if you have it uh, compared to an exclusion without. Hence, you put more weight on the quality measure control on the second category compared to the first. But that—that's what I think we should take home from these exercises: is that it—it highlights through numbers that errors occur, and it can be a driver to put quality measures in place, uh, which, uh, which will ultimately reduce to some degree these errors. In the study, when we compare majority, we discuss this majority vote um, as being considered to be the, the, the right answer. We, we didn't had a majority vote of identification on a uh, non-true source case, but we had discrepancies uh, on majority vote for exclusion on true source cases. In one, two, three, four, in five cases, the majority of examiners voted for an exclusion when the truth, the grand truth state of affair was it was coming from the same source. So it shows that quality measures should be increased on the exclusion side in order to avoid this much more than on the identification side.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, the paragraph in that area of the paper you were discussing was probably the only part of the paper which, let me say again, I, I, I love this paper and I think it's such a great contribution, but that one paragraph was the only one that made me go, hmm, because it, like you said in those cases, of the five cases where the majority said exclusion and the minority said it was an identification because they found it. I suspect they'll be very similar to Heidi's cases, that if there had been a verification step or some sort of conflict resolution, they would have brought that to the initial examiner, and the examiner would have seen instantly, oh, I made the false negative, here it is there. I doubt they would have maintained their exclusion decision throughout a conflict process, and, and the other person effectively accused of a false positive the paper alludes to that how do you sort it out could the one who's a breaking from the majority have made a false positive i suspect in those missed cases though you won't have that sort of conflict
2: thoughts well um yes with heidi we have uh, we are working on some sort of um Verification regime exercised based on these cases, because you can consider each case that was distributed to 70 examiners as, as a way to check if verification have, will have helped to detect these deviations. In one case, and that's quite troubling, uh, in, in one of the case, we had on roughly 70, 80 examiners took the case. Uh, we had a third who said no value, so the case didn't go through. And then for the, the the rest, it's a 50-50 split between identification and exclusion. 50-50 split. So then, if you put a verification regime on that case, you you will not catch that problem immediately. You will need at least two examiners to catch that problem. Yeah.
3: Yeah, but. Christoph, I think I think the point that Glenn may be making that I'm not sure we have addressed is that in our verification scheme, we're still taking them as sort of independent events where each person is looking at it in a vacuum. Um, and I think what Glenn is getting at is if, if you and I worked in a laboratory together and I said it was an ID and I gave it to you to verify it, you called it an exclusion. At some point, you and I would talk to one another. And, in, and uh, we would be able to show, I would be able to show you, no, here's where I saw it. And you would say, oh, okay, you are right. And and when we're doing just sort of uh, independent verification schemes and you don't have that interaction between the people, that's where the mistake might be caught is during that discussion.
2: Or as Christoph is pointing out, it may not get caught. Exactly. Right. Statistically, if you consider the, the, the 80% who took that case, you have you have 50% chance to catch the problem in verification. You will need two verifiers, and mm-hmm. then you increase the chance. But again, I think that's one of, of the take-home message we can take from these, is it allow to test ver- verification regime and mm-hmm. maybe show that in some cases we will not be able to catch the error just using one verifier, but I can already already say that probably for exclusion, if you want to really minimize the rate of false exclusions, you, you may need more than one checker. Or use case safis Or use k <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Absolutely. Yeah,
3: product product nice placement. Uh, and,
2: and, and, that's, and that is where we, we should open the discussion because technology yeah yes. is something which could which which could address a lot of the issues that we observe here exactly uh,
0: and not just technology but also training before we going to a, a second verifier for you know so three people are looking at all these I would yeah you know, would I' would want to to see what these numbers do how it changes after adding in that technology component but then also the the training component if people are become actually trained on on exclusions and like Heidi, probably gonna butcher the, the phrasing that you used so eloquently earlier, but but to have that mindful decision uh when making an exclusion instead of being the default.
3: Yeah, the other component that I actually would like to look into, and I, I haven't gone back and looked at these particular cases where the majority erroneously voted exclusion, I would like to see the actual pairs, because I wonder if there's some sort of equality component here too. You know, were were these all the uh, challenging ones that fell into yeah. the bin, or were they ones that were clear as day, and and half the group just happened to miss it somehow? Because there may be some way to put sort of common sense policies in place that address uh, exclusions of more difficult pairs.
0: Yeah, the the, the FBI uh, exclusion paper had that the cores and deltas um, minutiae count and quality is all being your know, components. Uh, where you had a trend towards uh, a higher error rate.
1: Yeah, and Heidi, you've got that for the false positives. You've got a really cool table, that figure eight there, that shows that, I mean, when I'm looking at Mm -hmm. the, the 12 false positives, I mean, it's pretty clear, I mean, in like, trial 38 and trial 268 and the majority are are no value decisions and you've got a, a very high percentage of inconclusives there i mean even without looking at some sort of quality metric i mean it's pretty clear that a number of these are probably lower quality but i would love to have seen a quality metric like you just said or or some other kind of metric uh that separates out the the errors from the non errors.
3: yeah yeah that would be interesting to see we couldn't do everything. <laughs> we did so much analysis no, no, on the you... darn thing. <laughs> but it's a great idea.
2: <laughs> we computed false positive rate and false negative rate for every examiner. So of course, if you, if you take the majority rule that we decided, it means that even examiners who have a high false positive rate, and we have a few, or a high false negative rate, and we have a few, are are declared to be as valid examiners as the others. One way to 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 move away from this would could be to to select as the agreed grant truth answer only from examiner who showed a s- uh, f- uh, low false positive and false negative rate. So you re- you reduce your population to a set of examiners you give higher trust through their mm. performance over the time. Uh, and that may—I I don't know the answer. It may change a little bit the the, the, the results, and and it may it may lead to maybe one of your case being back in the right condition. <laughs> <laughs> so, did, did you
0: after doing that? Did you see any um, any interesting? Oh, no, I haven't done it. I, I was. Oh, you
2: haven't done it yet. Okay. But in the shiny app, you have uh, you have a graph that shows all examiners with dots on false positive rate on one axis and the false negative rate on the other axis. And you could see the examiners who made two wrong identification. You can see the examiners who did one wrong identifications and you can see the people who have made no mistakes as far as wrong identification, but be, they may have done quite a lot of ex- wrong exclusions. So if you select only the examiners who would be below 5% in false positive and below Twenty percent as false negative, for example, then you may have a different group to do, to to elect the right to tell what is the grand truth.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because you could also throw in a, a measurement of you know uh, how conclusive examiners were. So if they said inconclusive, just a whole bunch. Well, then you know maybe exclude them too from this essentially this super panel of who gets to decide what the majority vote answer is indeed Yeah, that sounds very interesting
3: yeah we did a little bit of that i think in the erroneous exclusion section of the paper i'm trying to remember now but we we calculated the rates sort of including everybody and then only including the people who made a certain number of determinative decisions on exclusion because there were a lot of people who went inconclusive so often
1: Yeah, Tom Busey is doing some of this research right now, this taboo tradeoff he's talking about, Mm -hmm. where he's trying to define what an efficient examiner is. Because just as you pointed out, too many inconclusives is also not helpful to the process, that there's some healthy balance, but of course it's based on – you know, um, what is an ideal false negative rate? You know, how many errors can one accept uh, and still be considered a, you know, a, an accurate or efficient examiner? It's, it's an interesting question. And I know that Tom's very interested in all that right now.
3: Yeah, it's good stuff.
1: <laughs> well, as we sort of wrap things up here, I'm kind of curious if you could summarize some of the take home messages of the paper. What were just some of the, what's the take home? What's the summary that you like to leave for examiners?
3: Essentially, the main take-homes are that errors do occur, as we expected they would. Um, They are not Really far out of line with what we've already heard about fingerprint error rates. They're they're not shockingly high in either category, um, but they are significantly higher for the false negatives. So that's really where our concern and focus lie. And how do we define exclusions? How do we uh, institute policies or bring about training that will help to reduce this to the extent possible? And I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it. Um, As we discussed earlier, things like policies that more closely define criteria for making an exclusion can definitely reduce those false exclusions, but they're not going to eliminate them. So I think we need to just be looking at the false exclusions and what we can reasonably do operationally to improve what we're doing. You know, We're always striving to improve, um, but I don't think that we're in a bad place. I think we're in a place where it's warranted to exercise caution, particularly around exclusion decisions.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of data-driven policy changes. I don't mind the policy changes, but I, I want it to be data-driven. And for an agency that comes back to me and says, you know, we just don't have the resources to do verifications of exclusions, I think it seems pretty clear from your data that if an agency wanted to begin to verify exclusions, that they should at least start with palm print exclusions. <laughs> I mean, that would just be a, a, a simple yeah. a simple thing to do. When you have a palm print exclusion, do do verifications there, or you know, lack of focal points, anchor points. That's another area where an exclu- a verification could be introduced if an agency is resistant to yes. it. Yes,
3: yes. If they wanted the most bang for their buck, I think those are the the places where we're the most concerned.
1: Yeah. Or again, use technology, which to me, I truly believe that the technology component is what will reduce this error rate significantly. Because I think in many of these cases where you've got the romance exclusion, not only will the APHIS system find enough corresponding minutiae, but will then orient it in the correct position and highlight the correspondence, which is effectively what the verifier is going to do if they find it. They're, They're going to help alert that examiner, hey, Take a look at this area. Yeah,
3: we could tell that that was the problem many of the times from from comments that examiners made. That you know they they looked at it, then they instantly excluded it based on a presumption of it being on the other hand or of it being upside down.
0: Well, and that's basically using technology as the verifier, right? Yeah, that's still verifying.
1: It's just a different <laughs> a different new technology version of of that. And uh, Christoph, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the links and apps that are available, and we, we will make them available uh, when we post this episode up on our website. So you mentioned the Shiny app, and I know you guys had something else you wanted to share with listeners. Could you talk to that
2: a little bit? Yes, so the, there is two Shiny apps that you can access. One, the first one will give you all the results that are presented in the paper, but also you can go through each individual each user, they are presented by, by a number. Uh, so, Eric, you probably know who you are if you, if you check your results under your user number. Um, and it, we, we felt it's important that every, every user can access their own individual data. Thank you for that.
1: I mean, that that is one of my frustrations with these studies is you invest all this time and energy in these studies and then get zero feedback on your performance. I thank you so much for doing that.
2: So you can you can see where you are and you can compare yourself. So when you are on your username or user number, you can compare yourself with a group. So you see where you are in terms of false positive rate and false negative rate compared to all the other individual users. So this is one app, and it will show you how these regular statistics are computed. Then we did a second app, uh, which is referred to in the paper, which is only about confidence intervals. And we decided, because when we say that the error rate of of, uh, 0.7%, this is the point estimate obtained by dividing the 12 false positive divided by 1,785 total. Of course, statistically speaking, there is a, there is some uncertainty around this, and there is a lot of debate, especially in the PCAST report, about the what is the appropriate way of presenting these results. And PCAST took the option of computing or recomputing the 95% upper bound of the confidence interval. So we decided that we wanted to give a shiny application that will compute these upper bounds under any of the outcome of a study. And also, there is a long debate in the literature as to whether or not you should compute these confidence intervals using frequentist methods or using bayesian methods so in order to cut short on lengthy statistical discussion as to which method is best in the little app you can compute the confidence interval using all the methods that has been proposed in in the mainstream literature both from a frequentist perspective and from a bayesian perspective at the end of the day, it will show you that it does not make a difference in most situations. So it is a moot debate to argue for one versus the other, because if you compute roughly, even though the, def- the statistical definition of these terms are different, the, the numbers you get out of these computation are similar. We decided to have a separate application, because for us, the real meat is are in the results. And the statistical exercise is something which is to close a debate or to help with a a discussion in the community as to which best method should be used for computing confidence interval. But we don't think that this is critical for the discussion on a rate. And that leads me to we have produced a small primer which is directed to courts, members of the judiciary, and fingerprint experts, uh, and, and that is available on a, on a Zenodo link, which uh, I have given and will be made available to uh, the listener. We tried to give, in a short document, the key message about their rates, because one of our um, frustration, at least on my part, is that we tend to focus on the numbers. And as I said at the outset, it's one component of a discussion, and it's certainly something important for a judge to when it comes to assess the robustness of a discipline in his courtroom. But when it comes to the individual testifying, it's it's something which uh, should be accounted for, but only partially because there is other element that comes into play. The error rates that we discussed are rates that are reflecting an average professional population and will not apply individually. So we felt important to explain the areas of use of these numbers, when it is relevant to use these numbers, and they are relevant probably, as we discussed before, for admissibility hearings, but they are not relevant when it comes to discuss individuals. Uh, and I think this is very important because otherwise there is a confusion between performance of an expert doing his activity and the performance of a profession or an activity at, uh, in, in, in a large group. And making that distinction is very important to, to us. Hence the production of uh, primer comic, which you will see little question and answers session in court, and a little document that you can distribute to any lawyers who, or judges or members of the judiciary who may have have questioned about error rates
0: i was hoping that you would eventually throw in the word comic because when when you said primer i i was like i, wonder, I, I didn't quite connect what that would be <laughs> but opening up the page yeah it's a little comic strip of you know lady testifying in court it's a jury and lawyers and judge and they talk about fingerprints and error rates
2: and this is, this is great a primer it's a, it's a term that I borrowed from from uh, from the u k It's very popular in the u k to prepare primer documents for judges, so it, it tells them it tell them, "Give me everything about DNA in five pages if possible and and, and this is to educate uh, the courts about new technology, new concepts and and we felt that when it comes to these error rate numbers, it's important to try to educate in a non-specialist document what it means and how it should be used i, I just just got a big
0: smile on my face when, when i when i just imagine handing handing the judge or the attorney's
2: this you know comic
0: book uh, version of uh,
2: of this explanation but there is an additional one if you click on the second link which which oh, okay. is, which is a which is a, a two three page doc, or five page document but again, i I don't
0: mean to make fun because it's great. it is It is a great explanation of of how a discussion on uh, error, the possibility of error and error rates from uh, from studies, you know uh, should should happen in a courtroom setting.
1: Yeah, that's a really nice value added tool for the community. Thank you for sharing that. both of you. Thank you. Welcome. I was going to jump in and ask you if you thought in the debate about pcast and error rates, do you agree the lower bound should be included? Is that in the primer? Uh, we in
2: the primer, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, we have given both. Uh, my my opinion on this is that pff, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> on on an on an examiner basis, if you compute your error rate, in fact, Eric. If you take your user number and you go to the app, you can compute your own error rate. Now, I can predict that you will have quite a high false positive rate, even though you have made no false identification. The reason is that you have done a number of comparisons in these tests on your name, on your user number, but at the end of the day, it's not a huge number. So if you make zero mistake over 50 comparisons, the upper bound is still pretty high, statistically speaking. Does it mean, and I'm just taking one case, 5%, does it mean that you will have a 5% error rate for you? No. So I think my... One of my fear, we transform a discussion about the credibility and quality of an expert witness in a statistical discussion, whether he has done 52 comparison and made no errors and what does it mean statistically speaking. It's irrelevant. Now, of course, Eric, if you had made 10 wrong identifications, <laughs> I think I would have a question to ask. <laughs> but I don't need, I, I just need the a row number, I don't even need the ratio, the frequency, the positive predictive, your positive predictive value, and the confidence interval on it. It's, it's ridiculous. It's useless. I just need to know how many comparisons have you done, how many mistakes, and what, what have you learned from this?
3: So if any users or listeners are wanting to go to those apps, the shiny apps we discussed, and either play with their results or play with anyone's results or play with the confidence intervals, each app might look a tiny bit intimidating when you first come to it because there are lots of different boxes that you can select. On both apps, on the left side, there is a button that says something like Quick Tour Help. If you click on that, there are a series of little pop-up boxes that will come up for different portions of the screen, and they actually give you a tour of what each area does and instructions on how to use it. So if you find that you're having trouble or encountering errors, you might want to take that little tour just to find out where you should be clicking in each section to get what you're looking for.
1: That's great. That That's very helpful. All right. Well,
0: uh, Heidi, Christoph, thank you both for joining us here uh, this week.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, We'll have time here very soon to talk about uh, the other paper that came out uh, from the same uh, set of research. Uh
1: Yeah, and and, and I do want to congratulate you guys both on a fantastic project that is really a huge contribution to the field. I think it's a great paper. It's going to go to my list of... Required mandatory reading for every examiner. This should be right up there. I love it. It was a great paper.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. We, we didn't get into it very
0: much, but for you know all the listeners out there, as they've just been given an assignment by Glenn, I'm, I'm going to add on to that and say the appendices too. There's often just so much good information that you you have to look through the appendix to find. Uh, and, and this one is uh, definitely the same.
1: All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get to the anagram and wrap things up here, Eric.
0: So the anagram, I had said leafiest vegan and, uh, Glenn looks like you said right away, basically you'd already unscrambled it, but I, I know, uh, Heidi and Christoph, we were busy asking you questions this whole time and talking, but, uh. I wanted to give you the opportunity if if you had happened to unscramble those words or if you had just forgotten about it.
3: (laughs) No, I didn't forget about it, but I was not able to uh, assign any brain cells to really get into it. I I found a couple little words, but nothing that used all the letters and nothing that hung together.
1: (laughs) Did you see vestige in there? Oh,
3: my goodness. No. I mean,
1: no, I didn't even see that one in there. I yeah, I do so, now. Yeah, initially, I thought you're going for vestige, but uh, mm. I'll give the answer, Eric. I, well, I, you know what,
0: I, I, uh, I think uh, you may have had a, a leg up on on Christoph and Heidi uh, in that you know I generally pick a word to scramble up that is related to the show somehow, or the topic that we're going to be discussing. Uh-huh. So that definitely, you know, it focuses in the the world of possibilities. But go ahead. False negative.
3: Nice. I kind of
0: just like the, that, uh, just that phrase "leafiest vegan" and uh, you know uh, an unscrambling of false negative. Uh, you know, there's got to be something there, but um, maybe it goes into a, a, a training slide I do at some point in the future. <laughs> but uh, in any case, again, thank you guys so much for joining us. For all the listeners out there, uh, you can go to DoubleLoopPodcast.com dot com and uh, see all of our information about uh links to Twitter and, and uh and everything on, uh, like that. Uh you can contact us over email if you have any questions or if you need somehow to get the link for this paper, uh you can email Glenn at Elite dot com or me, Eric at rayforensics dot com.
1: And please check out webinars that I have upcoming as well through Evolve Forensics. That's www.evolveforensics.com with Alice White. Uh, check those out uh, ongoing through at least the, the summer.
0: And uh, on our website, we also have a, a, new, uh, a new thing there. And that's um, the, the email list uh, that started with Charlie Parker and uh, was run for many, many years by Sandy Siegel. Um, we're going to be helping out with uh, as well uh, now going forward uh, so if you want to be added on to a list uh, where you get emails with training opportunities articles etc etc etc
1: case examples exactly
0: there's uh, going to be a, a place on our website where you can put in your email address and, and start rec- receiving that soon anything that uh, the speakers say represent their own views and not necessarily of anyone they may work for. And with
1: that, uh, thank you guys all and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and try to stay sane.